You are listening to the Future of Now podcast. We share stories from technologists, futurists, and corporate rebels from across the globe that are shaping the way we work, driving innovation, and disrupting industry. Our goal with this podcast is to inspire you to explore new ways of working and opportunities for growth. I am Dan Levy. And I'm your host, Aki Maidamari, and we're from More Space for Light. In this episode, we are joined by Christine Lucer. Christine is an Associate Professor of Business at Minerva University. Hey, Christine, thank you so much for joining us on the Future of Now podcast. I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. And I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So I know that we're gonna be covering a lot in our conversation, but thinking about how difficult it is to define branding, would you say that the question, what is branding might be the organizational akin to the question, what is the meaning of life? I love that as a metaphor. And I think it might be because I don't think that there is one meaning to life and there isn't a perfect way to brand things. But there are structured ways to craft a meaningful life, and there are structured ways to craft a meaningful brand, which I hope we'll get to talk about later. That's a question that I'm going to definitely build on later. But before we get into that, I guess it would just be right to ask you about yourself and get to know a little bit more about you. But I know that you have quite an interesting background. Maybe you can let us know how you got here and how I ended up having this conversation here today. Sure, thanks. I basically have always just chased what felt most interesting at any given time. So I went to a small liberal arts college. I made up my own major uh, at Holy Cross, which is a combination of philosophy, psychology, and biology. And because of that, I got really interested in the way people perceive their social world. So right out of undergrad, I went to a PhD program and got my PhD in cognitive neuroscience at Dartmouth, where I studied how people perceive the mental states of others from a social psychology and a neurobiological standpoint. And then I wasn't sure exactly what I would do after. And someone on my thesis committee said, well, Harvard Business School has this postdoc. You should apply to that. Business is gross. I'm a scientist. (laughs) But there were really interesting scientists there, which I was very ignorant and did not understand this. So I went and I got to learn a little bit about business. I got to experience the case teaching method. I ultimately decided that business wasn't really for me and I wanted to go back and teach psychology, but it had planted this seed that psychology had a lot to say about the way we did business. So I taught in the Harvard Psych Department for a year and then I heard about this crazy new university that was starting up called Minerva. I applied to be a psych professor there went through the whole interview process and they were like, how about you teach business? And I was like, no, but (laughs) they, uh, they wanted to know why I said, well, I think that there are some intersections there, but traditional business programs don't really delve into the psychology. And I I really want to teach psychology and I teach research methods and I want to teach experimentation. Well, we're building this program from scratch and you can help change the status quo if you don't like it. And it ended up being a lot of work, but they gave me the agency to do that. And so I spent the last six years at Minerva helping to build the business college and am now actually quite happy to be teaching and researching at the intersection of psychology and business. And it seems like you talk a lot about branding and that seems to be your focus, but how did you make the connection between your studies and how did that happen? Accidentally. So in grad school, I studied how we perceive that another thing in the world 
has a mind and is something we could interact with. And I thought that that was totally divorced from business. I could make the stretch. I was like, you do business with other people. And that's why psychology is related. But I found branding to be this really interesting field where we're trying to make inferences about an organization. And it reminded me a lot of the research I was doing about making inferences about other people. And this isn't my idea. People have brand personality they talk about. They talk about anthropomorphizing brands. But I saw a lot of deep connections between what I studied in grad school called mind perception, how we sort of make up the mind of another human with how we sort of make up the mind of an organization. And that's what I think a brand is. And so it took a lot of just talking about it and hearing myself say things, listening to other smart people say things till I saw this connection between something I knew really well and something I was sort of exploring because I was fortuitously assigned to teach a class on it. So I know that when we last spoke, I had mentioned that what you were studying kind of reminded me a little bit of Uncanny Valley. And this is a question that I'm going to ask you about a little bit later about untrustworthy and trustworthy brands. But that feeling that you get when you realize that you're interacting with a brand that might be untrustworthy, it gives you that really uncanny, unsettling feeling. It's a great point. And it's an interesting connection because I hadn't necessarily done the leap to Uncanny Valley until you and I had talked. And so just for people who might not know, the Uncanny Valley is this crazy theory posited by a roboticist in 1970, who was working at a place that was trying to make humanoid robots. And everybody who worked there was like, these are so great. And then they'd show them to other people and they'd be like, these are really, really, really creepy. (laughs) And so he posited that if something's kind of neutral and not at all similar to human, we feel net about it. But the more it starts to look like a human, we're like, oh, that's kind of cute. You have a pet rock, you have little anthropomorphic cartoons, you like it. So it rises quite a bit. And then if it gets too close to looking human, it kind of tanks. And then eventually he posits that it recovers when you start to get back to entirely human. So you like stuff that are anthropomorphic, you dislike stuff that are anthropomorphic, but too close to being human, just so they get this little bit of scrutiny. And then you're like, that's not a good human. That's not right. I don't trust it. And that's where you fall into this uncanny valley. I love the connection you just made about how companies can sometimes fall subject to that. They don't feel like they're real. And one of the things a participant said in an experiment where we were looking at face perception and we we're asking them to find the point at which it seemed animate, it was alive, it had a mind. They said, well, I found the point where it looked like it was looking back at me. And I think that that's actually kind of a powerful way to think about organizations is that you want the organization to make people feel as though it sees them. If you are leading an organization and you can make customers feel seen, you can bring them into a relationship, that's going to establish trust and that's going to make people really want to interact with the organization. And I love your attribution to the uncanny valley. And I think having an organization or having customers feel like they're being seen by an organization, that's something that I definitely want to touch on a little bit more. But you mentioned that you were an associate professor at Minerva. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what Minerva is, what makes the educational process or approach a little bit more unique. Sure. So Minerva's goal, full stop, no matter what we do, is to help learners acquire transferable skills that will be useful no matter what they do in the future. And so we do that in a couple of different ways. 
In our undergrad program, students learn about transferring knowledge by moving around the globe as a cohort. They spend their first semester in San Francisco, their second semester in Taipei, then they go to Seoul and then Hyderabad and then Berlin and then Buenos Aires and then London and they come back to San Francisco to graduate. And part of that experience is having them see what life feels like in lots of different places so they can transfer their personal knowledge into lots of different contexts. We also do it inside of the classroom by using a curriculum that was built from the ground up about experiential and active learning. So we're trying to use the best practices from pedagogy research to design classes that really help students acquire knowledge deeply and see how that knowledge is useful across different contexts. And so we assess them on skills across all of their courses. For example, everybody in their first year learns what an emergent property is. It's a function of a complex system. And so the whole has a different property than any of its individual parts. And then they're assessed later on, maybe two years later in a biology course where they might talk about the way birds flock, or they might be assessed in my branding course about brand being an emergent property of people's cognition. And so that approach to trying to have people do cross-contextual practice of specific skills is something that we do with our partnerships as well. And I work in the professional learning space, but we also partner with high schools and other universities. So we are a standalone university, but we are also an organization that works with other organizations to transform the way they think about learning. So it sounds like the courses are quite different and it almost seems like there's a bit of a disconnect there. But when you think about it, and I'm sure you're aware of the term systems thinking, I'm sure that's something that comes up quite a bit. But I listened to your podcast about it. <laughs> wow, thank you. But it's interesting to see how you can pick up something like branding, for example, and see how it connects across so many different areas where it seems like there is no connection. And yet you're teaching your students to to really pick up on that skill and develop that. That's exactly right. That is what we are trying to double down on so much so that we introduce this taxonomy of 76 skills in the freshman year curriculum. And then we continue to grade them on it for the next three years. And it goes back and revises their freshman year grades. What I'm trying to do is help students build a skeleton key because as an educator, whether my students are in kindergarten or they're in college or they're adult learners, I can never prepare them for every situation they'll face. The best thing I can do is help them see these foundational skills being applicable across lots of different contexts. So they develop almost a 3D representation of when that skill will be useful. And then they can flexibly apply it when they don't have the structure of a classroom around them. Because learning doesn't happen just in a class. It happens when you're out in the world obtaining new information. Definitely. Have you noticed any key differences between the students who have gone through this Minerva educational process compared to other students? Yes. So they are remarkably good problem solvers by the time that they are done. So that's one endpoint difference because I think that they are sometimes at a discipline disadvantage relative to somebody who goes computer science degree that has taught them only computer science. Maybe they had some general ed requirements. But our computer science courses are about decision making in computer science. My branding courses are how do you do strategy? How do you make decisions about a brand? I'm not teaching them how to use HubSpot software, although we do talk about it as a useful tool. We're not trying to build people who can do one thing. We're trying to build really flexible thinkers. So on the graduation side, they're just 
they're so smart and interesting by the end, but they also come in. So to be a student and take a risk on a new institution, we were accredited through a partnership. So it wasn't like they were going to something that was completely untested. We've just spun out. We're actual university now, but you need to have a certain level of risk tolerance. And so the kids who come in are very, very bright. We have ridiculously high admission standards, but they're also really entrepreneurial and interesting. So you take that subsample of people who are willing to take a risk on a new institution, and then you give them this sort of supercharged power kit of decision-making tools, and they come out on the end, just really interesting humans. So if someone were to come into your branding class on the first day, how do you kind of kick that off? What's the first thing that you talk about? We talk about cultural transmission, mind perception, and anthropomorphizing brands. That's literally what the three readings are about. And what I'm trying to do is get them to see branding, not just from a brand perspective. There's no branding textbook. It's like, okay, humans evolved to perceive other people. So we have to talk about evolution. Humans learn from other people. So we have to talk about cultural transmission. And then I give them an approach to thinking about branding in this sort of scientific framework, which is the idea that when we're perceiving brands, sometimes we try to establish relationships with them and we try to anthropomorphize them. And then I say, the reason we probably do that are for these cultural transmission reasons and these evolutionary reasons that we sought out other minds. And that's actually a pretty good place to kind of talk about why we even perceive brands in the first place. But I'll pause and see if that made sense. I think that's such an interesting starting point because normally you find when you go like into a branding course, they'll be like, hey, here are the five elements of branding. And they'll talk about, you know, logo, color, values or things like that. You know, we know Marty Neumeyer and we we really can't talk about branding without talking about his definition of what branding is, which is basically that brand is a customer's gut feeling um, about the company, product or the service. And then, of course, because that's not a universal definition yet, there's other definitions like, and one that I read is that branding itself is the process of giving meaning to an organization. And then, of course, like I said, how brands can just simply be distilled to elements and assets like the logo or the website. Why do you think we're having such difficulty defining what branding is? A great designer listened to a talk I gave and summarized it by saying, brand is squishy. (laughs) Taylor did this beautiful (laughs) LinkedIn carousel. And I was like, brand is squishy. That's awesome. And I think it is squishy because I can just use it in conversation and no one makes me pause and explain what I mean because we all think we know what it is. And if you Mm -hmm. force people to come up with a definition, they tend to kind of wave their hands and be like, oh, you know, Like Nike is a brand. Like, okay, well, what about Nike is the brand? Is it the whole organization? People are like, no, it's kind of the logo. And you're like, is it just the logo? And they're like, no, it's also the slogan. You're like, well, is it just the slogan? And so I really like Marty Neumeier's definition because it's, it's encompassing. And it does a couple of important things. It says that the brand is the customer's gut feeling about the company, the product, or the service. And that points out that it's a gut feeling. It's a feeling. It is not a thing that exists in the world. It's something that exists inside of a head. And it says it's a customer's. And that means it doesn't belong to the organization. It belongs to the person who is perceiving the organization. And so what I 
try to do for my students and when I work with organizations on branding is I say, branding is not something that you have complete control over. You make decisions and you do actions. That's the branding you choose to do. But there's also the branding that you don't intentionally choose to do. It's the way your employees treat their customers. Those are the things that you can actually own. But to get to brand, what this gut feeling is, you also have to take into account the audience's perspective and you have to take into account the competition. So we already talked about emergent property being this thing that kind of comes out of a complex system. And I think of brand as an emergent property. And it emerges from lots of different things, lots of different interactions among the things, but we can break it down into three main ones, which is what your organization does, what the audience's perspective is, and what the competition does. The problem with all of that is it is different for every single person who perceives your organization. So Marty Neumeyer's definition is so wonderful because it's pointing out that it is an individual's perception. So you don't just have one brand, you don't have you don't necessarily have consistency. You have as many brands as there are people who are perceiving your organization. So it exists inside the minds of people's heads. And it's this emergent property. It's actually a cognition that exists inside people's heads. And it's just the summation of all of the ways that they have experienced your organization and what their idea of your organization is is the brand for them. And then the overall brand is kind of this amorphous thing that we talk about, we assign value to, but we can't control. And that's why I think it's so squishy. And that's why I think we have difficulty branding the word brand. There's there's several good points that I picked up there. I think the first one being that you mentioned Nike as a brand that a lot of people kind of mention when people ask, you know, what what is a brand? And there was an article that talked about how when people do talk about brands, they tend to lean into big brands, well-known brands like Nike or Apple or Microsoft or anything that they can identify very quickly with. And it's just interesting because, and I think um, Starbucks has actually come out and kind of said that, you know, they're not really just a brand. They've described themselves as a lifestyle brand. And people were just kind of like, oh, okay, I get it now. But what really is a lifestyle brand? What does like what does that mean? And everyone has their own lifestyle. And like you said, they set their own values to what they believe a lifestyle brand is. And so after that, I think, you know, there was just this huge surge of what we call now like lifestyle brands. And I guess having it distilled into something that is more tangible, like a logo or something that we can see and understand, it kind of brings that that feeling to us that we understand, we get what you, you're talking about because we can measure that and we can see it. I think the really, really tangible things that I might call branding assets, right? Branding is the thing that you do. Brand is the thing that we're all trying to value and define. Branding is easy to conflate with your brand because it's the part that you control. The rest you can manage. If you have a really specific audience, you can predict how they'll interpret what you do. So the perceiver sees you in a certain light. Subaru has nothing to do with animals, right? But they donate to the ASPCA. They have dogs in all of their commercials. They're simply carving out space in people's heads to be associated with things that really have nothing to do with their car. It just makes them feel good. So this idea of having a feeling associated with your organization, 
think what really, really strong brands do, and to your point, everybody goes to Nike, they go to Microsoft, they go to big brands that they have an understanding of. I think big brands that are good at branding have such a clear idea of how they want people to see them. And they do all of these things to make that perception consistent. And that's what I think good branding is. It's if you can homogenize the perception of your organization across many different people, then you have good brand equity. And you mentioned organizations actually not having control over their brand. And one of the questions that I have is that people are now saying that organizations used to have more control over how they can have people perceive them as a brand and they have more control over what the messaging that they're sending across or like how people see them. But because of social media, people and customers now have taken that control from organizations because there are things like Google reviews or Yelp or even Instagram and Twitter. And it's so instantaneous, the reaction to a brand or something that they've had experience with that now customers are able to form what the organization actually stands for, as opposed to the organization being able to do that in their own hands. Do you feel like there is an actual shift there? Or do you think that it's just quicker and that organizations haven't had control this whole time? Or what are your thoughts on that? I would say that organizations have had a much louder microphone than all of the other components that might add up to brand in the first place, particularly the audience's perception. So if we go back to why we even perceive brands in the first place, I think it's based in our evolutionary biology, like we were talking about before, with perceiving other people's minds. So we can perceive an individual. We know that humans do this really, really quickly. They make first impressions. They say, okay, here's my gut feeling about that person. As soon as I meet them, I have an impression. It's not always right. It can sometimes change, but it's influenced by very specific things. One is what other people think about that person. So I'm super sensitive to knowing that Dan thinks you're great. And so I come in with a predisposition that I'm really going to like you. So that is what has been amplified through the use of social media is the opinions of other people influencing my own perception of what an organization does. So I wouldn't say that there's any more or less control systematically. It's just that one thing that contributes to what a brand is which is my perception of other people's perceptions has way more ability to reach my brain and influence what I'm going to think about the organization. So I, I wanted to ask you the question, what makes a brand trustworthy or what makes a brand untrustworthy? But I suppose based on what you just said, a brand can be trustworthy to one person and I suppose it could be untrustworthy to another person just because of how differently both people might perceive a brand. Do you think that there might be universal underlying elements that could make a brand trustworthy more so than a brand who isn't? Yes. So trust from a psychological standpoint, and I don't want to get this definition wrong, but it essentially is, it's this state in which I'm going to accept being vulnerable because I think that there will be positive benefits later on from another person, or in this case, from an organization. So I'm willing to put myself in a position of vulnerability. And it's that feeling of trading off vulnerability for positive expectations. That is how psychologists tend to define trust. 
And the way organizations can harness that is by letting people know that they should be able to expect positive things, right? It's super straightforward. It's like, I'm going to trust you not to harm me, not to take advantage of me, not to be incompetent. And so all of these things that we're putting our expectations in from the perceiver standpoint is a calculation. I'm deciding whether I want to trust you because I think that the cost of being vulnerable will be exceeded by the gain of whatever positive thing I expect. Organization can use that by not taking advantage of customers, by being really reliable, by treating them well, by making them feel seen the way we talked about before. And all of that, if I had to summarize it in one word, is consistency. Right, A brand is trustworthy when it is consistent in its messaging. It's very clear about who and what it is. It's very clear about its value proposition. It's very clear about how it's going to treat customers. And you know what to expect from it. And those expectations are good. And so I think you're 100% right that you and I can look at exactly the same brand and have different feelings of trust. But if that organization is really good, at branding, it's going to be able to make a diverse audience feel trust, or they're going to niche down. So they've homogenized their audience, they've made them all very similar, and then they know how to speak to that specific audience. I think it's just interesting that all the points that you've said that makes a brand trustworthy, it has nothing to do with the actual visual aspect of it. It has everything to do with how a person feels. And I think one level of branding perhaps is So you mentioned consistency. And one thing that people tend to talk about is, you know, having visual consistency. So like, what is your brand's colors? How can you make that consistent and look consistent across all the platforms that you use or all the channels that you use? And that's maybe level one. And then what you've described is going down a level and really taking that. It's almost like like you're getting to know a person, like you're really getting to know that personality underneath. And so how do they make you feel? Have they, have they been reliant? Have they, you know, treated their customers well? Are they giving back to society? And that's like a second layer. I know that there's been discussions about a shift of people being like, you know, is it is it Gen Y now or Gen, Gen Z or something like that? <laughs> but like the next Z, generation. so young. <laughs> Gen Z and how how they're more interested in experiences or how a brand makes them feel. But it just seems like perhaps what people are looking at or how people are associating whether they know it or not and how they're associating with the brand has just kind of evolved a little bit it hasn't really changed much like people still want a consistent looking brand but they also want the consistency in terms of the feeling and it just seems like we've taken a next step as opposed to it completely changing i think what has happened is that the things that will make us feel connected to a company to an organization have always been there but we've had fewer options Right. So I use Tide. I will never use another laundry detergent for the rest of my life because that's what my mom used when I was growing up. Right. That is a sense of trust. It's tied into my family. It's a really, really gut reaction that's positive. But it's not any different than deciding to choose a really hit brand now. It's still a gut reaction. The thing is that there's so many more brands to choose from that some brands are doing more of this top-down branding and this bottom-up sort of treat your customers right branding that is 
their point of differentiation. Right? The market is saturated with products that are practically identical, Lyft versus Uber. They're still getting us to the same place. They're roughly the same price. But there's a feeling that's associated with Uber because of their story that might be different than the feeling that's associated with Lyft because of their story. And so some of that is intentional on the part of the organizations as a point of differentiation. So I don't think people have changed in what they're looking for. I think companies have gotten smarter about using brand intentionally to differentiate themselves from very similar competition. Mm. You mentioned top-down branding and bottom-up branding. I can't I feel like I might, I might kind of get it, but do you want to maybe explain, I said explain it? No, you're 100% a good point for clarification. So if I say top down, what do you think I mean? So I kind of, I'm just thinking about how I described it just now as just more like the top layer of a brand. So maybe like the, the visual aspects and the, the assets. So like the logos and the colors and just the very like, I guess, super, like superficial aspects of a brand is kind of how I think of it. Yeah. So I think it's not necessarily superficial in that it's unimportant, right? Like you said, people yeah, really yeah. like visual consistency. All of that is there to give the feeling of safety that I have yeah. an expectation, it's being met, it makes me feel a certain way. It's all the things that brand managers try to control and do. It could be your mission, it could be your purpose. It's all of these explicit statements of who we are and how we want to be seen. So. If I want to talk about myself and my personality, I want to be seen as a nerd. But then if I go around not behaving nerdy, that's bottom-up evidence that I am not a nerd. This is actually a horrible <laughs> example. I should say, I want to be seen as a cool person. But if, And this yeah. is where I think the real power of branding is, is that when a leader understands that branding is huge, that it's everything your organization does that could ever affect a customer's perception of you, you can organize your top-down branding to say, this is our messaging about who we are, this is our visual identity, this is our brand voice, this is our purpose, our mission, but you also have to organize your internal procedures around that purpose so that all of the employees behave consistently when they interact with customers, when they talk about their work outside of it. If you work for a company that says they treat their employees great and all of their messaging and then somebody comes and they talk to me and I'm like, actually, this company treats us all like crap. Those are conflicting signals. So a really good brand manager, a really good leader is going to come in and say, our brand has to be baked into all of the things we do it is our guiding purpose. And we want to have people see us in this way. So this is how we will behave. And make sure that the employees know that. So brand isn't just for customers. It's for internal stakeholders as well. The way you've described that makes it sound like there's an overlap in branding and then organizational culture. So where would you draw the line and the difference? Or would you say that they're, the lines are kind of blurred and they're pretty much the same? I think that they're blurry insofar as I would put brand as this giant umbrella that subsumes different sorts of things. So brand is this emergent property. Some of it comes from branding, which is the actions that the company does. Some of that is intentional, like design, voice, all of those things. But some of it is intentional for other less obvious things like organizational culture. So brand and branding are kind of the umbrella terms that your strategy, that your design, that your org culture, they all fit under that because brand is sort of the 
the shorthand way to say the way we behave makes people feel a certain way. And if I can acknowledge that and design my organization around it, that's going to give me a boost up in the minds of anybody who's perceiving my organization. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the more space branding in a little bit, but that just reminds me of what we've been doing at more space is so like every week we have these strategy meetings on Friday and we set aside an hour to kind of talk about the direction of the brand and where we want to take it and how we want to see it grow. And at one point we set aside one week where we were like, let's just talk about brand. Let's just talk about branding. And that's it. And it got to a point where every week I was just like, cause we were, we were talking about different things and it got to a point where I was just like, you know what, everything that we're talking about, it, it branding, it, it touches on everything that we're talking. Like we can't really isolate it. We can't spend just one hour of the week talking about it and saying, you know, this is going to be our brand strategy, but then let's completely ignore that the following week, because no matter what you talk about, there has to be that level of consistency. Like you said, you can't just silo it separately from brand. Like it's, it's not something that you can just contain and put it to the side one week and not think about it the next. And that's something that we came to discover pretty early on is that like, I think it was by like week three of of our strategy meetings or something. We were just like, it's really not possible to just kind of set it aside and be like, let's not talk about branding this week because as more space, how, how are we not going to talk about our voice and what we do as a team? And like, how are we not going to talk about how those affect the things that we're putting out in the world? You know, it's such a good insight. And the thing that I will sometimes ask people to ponder is if you don't do an ounce of branding, do you still have a brand? The answer is obviously yes, because it's people's perception. You don't have to do anything to have people perceive you a certain way. The magic comes when you think about what that perception is, how you want to be seen, and then behave in a way that lets people see you like that. So the best way to do a brand strategy is super simple. You write out what you want to be seen as. You go talk to a bunch of customers and you ask how they see you. And then you figure out a way to go from point A to point B. Point A being where they are and B is where you want them to go. And how you actually do that is difficult. But the overall idea of understanding that how you want to be seen should drive all of the choices you make is exactly consistent with the story you just told. You can't take branding out of an organization. And when it comes to branding, where have you noticed that most organizations fall short? What is something that is missing and what is the gap? Like, where do brands typically end and are like, all right, we're done with branding? And where do they need to push further? It's a great question. I think it's in not acknowledging what you just described, is they think that brand is something that happens in a brand strategy meeting, and then you've designed your visual identity and you have a voice and you can just go use it. And it's really this iterative process. Brand should be present in every conversation you have about your organizational procedures, about your new hires, about culture, about your messaging campaigns. You have to think about brand as something we tell people. And we sometimes do, but it's also what people perceive about us. And once you realize that it's all of the things that you do, and it's this outside perception that you have to contend with, you're much more open to listening to your audience. You're much more open to understanding what your competition does. You see those as competitive advantages 
for helping people see you the way you want to be seen. You need to have a really clear sense of purpose and mission. You need to know why you are in business, but then you need to say, I'm going to use that to make people feel a certain way. And if you can do that, that is what I think really, really powerful customer centric organizations capitalize on. And there just isn't that openness to it in a lot of ways. So I think the place where people fall down is they think that brand is this narrow function of a business rather than an all-encompassing umbrella term that defines the way perceivers feel about your organization. And going back to you know, us talking about why it's just been so difficult to define what branding is and how there's just not one single universal definition. And that can be quite frustrating, especially when we want to talk about branding. But do you feel like it's perhaps less important to have that universal definition as opposed to having an organizational definition of what branding means to the organization? So I think it's both, but I think one comes first, right? So if we understand the enormity of brand, if you're a leader who deeply understands that that's just a perception in the mind of anybody who's perceiving your organization, you can develop a strategy that manages that perception. So you run your organization with consistency, you treat your customers a certain way, you make alliances with certain kinds of organizations that are all going to enhance that perception that you want to be seen as. Of course, to make all of those strategic decisions, you need to know who your audience is and how you want them to perceive you. And that's where you have that, that, this is what branding means to us. This is how we want to be seen. So once you know how you want to be seen and you know that that has to filter through everything that you do, it's almost not that one is more important. It's like, I have to understand this to get this. And once I get this, I can do the thing that I used to say, I just kind of understood conceptually. Just on that note, like out of curiosity, oftentimes when you do a Google search on branding, marketing comes up as well. Where is that line in in the difference? And why does that get mixed up so often? I think that marketing is a series of I don't think marketing is a series of levers you can pull to move customer behavior. (laughs) That is a definition. So We often think in terms of marketing campaigns, like I will do this one thing, but it's also marketing research, right? I need to understand my audience. It's also trying to understand the competition. You do a competitive analysis, all those fall under marketing. I think branding is a newer concept and really it came from having undifferentiated products that needed a way to differentiate themselves. So the history of branding was, okay, well, I want to make sure that these people at the general store know that this flower came from my farm because that's going to give them this certain level of consistency. And the way most people thought about that was it was a logo, right? So brand became a way to communicate. It's just a logo. And that's something marketing can handle because the lever that we can pull. I think if we step back and think about the way organizations are using brand today and this much broader version that brand is how people are perceiving your organization, it's the mind of your organization, it's this feeling that people have, you understand that it's a lot broader. But I think historically, the way that the word got introduced and what it was originally used for was housed under marketing. So it's almost like we took a really, really useful 
term without realizing its utility and housed it in the small space. And only recently are organizations being able to harness the power by bringing it out of marketing and saying marketing is a way that we can do branding. We can also do branding in many different ways. What is the one thing that you would say to people in leadership positions who still are kind of on the fence about branding and they're like, is it really that important? Do we really need it? What's like the one thing that you'd want them to know? I do think it's important to realize that brand can be a competitive advantage. But the biggest thing would be people are going to have a perception of you no matter what. You do not control it. If you exist in the world and people can see what you do, if you're trying to get clients, customers, partners, they will have an impression about you. And brand is the tool you can use to better understand your audience, better understand your competition, and better understand your own business. And then you can manage that perception to create a stronger organization. And so I think once people who are on the fence about branding realize they can actually be a strategic tool to create consistency that drives customer appreciation and drives business value, they really need to own it because people are going to make impressions and they'll be sloppy if you don't try to manage what those perceptions are. Speaking of perceptions, this is actually something new. I've never really done this before where we get to ask sort of like an external pair of eyes on what they think about more space. But I'm really excited because this is bringing everything that we've talked about and using a real life brand to bring that all together. It's like our own case study. Exactly. So because we were talking about impression, I guess the question would be, what is your first impression or what was your first impression of more space for light? So my first impression was Dan Levy. And so he just messaged me. He heard a talk that I gave and was like, I think what you're doing is really cool. And I just wanted to say thanks so much and wondered if you wanted to connect. And I said, yes. And I looked at what he was doing and it sounded like it was a really interesting organization. And we had a conversation and he seemed great and he introduced me to you. And so I know up until... I guess up until I poked at the website to understand what your audience was for this podcast, like I had no idea what More Space for Light was. I didn't really understand what its organizational mission was. I didn't understand what the product was. All I knew was that I had a series of really, really great interactions with its representatives. So I had a remarkably positive impression of the brand. So now I understand a little bit more of what you do, but I start out on such a high foot that even if that was like just okay, it's very cool. It's not just okay, but you're already sending people down that chute. So for me, that's such a nice illustration of that bottom up branding that my impression is not formed based on some rational evaluation of your product. It was my first impression after meeting some people or seeing some graphics or reading about a case study. And so Mine was quite positive, and I want to flip the question, ask you about yours. So this is something Dan had actually asked me when he first hired me, and for people who are listening and don't know, I, I am the brand strategist of More Space for Light, but when I first started, I, I started as a design consultant, and that was because I was part-time, but when I first looked at More Space for Light, I just saw the name, and I was like, that is so unique and strange, and I was like, I wonder what that means, and I went to the website, because that's normally what I do when I see a new brand that I'm not aware of. But 
my first impression was like, this is so cool. I've never seen anything like this in Adelaide. We're based in Adelaide. And I was like, how, how are more organizations not on top of this? How are more organizations not doing stuff like this? And um, that was really my first impression. Like I, I, I talked to Dan very briefly through email. It was a quick sort of like back and forth. So that was like the first initial interaction that we had. But mine was more of a, I think the website really had just a big impact on me because I was going through everything that was on there. And I was like, this is something that I've never seen before. And I would love to be a part of it. And that was my, that was my reaction. Although that being said, when I had first met Dan in person, it was so funny because, and I don't know if he'll mind me telling this story, but like, um, it was was a great way to start a story. You're like, huh? So it was, it was just a sit down chat at a coffee shop. And we were like having a normal conversation. Right. And this, there's this one question that he asked me that I just haven't been able to forget about out of all the questions. Like, I can't remember the whole conversation, but he asked me this one really weird question. He was like, if you could describe Adelaide as an animal, what would it be? And I was sitting there and because up until that point, the conversation was just so normal. But that's like a very strong impression that I had of Dan. I was like, oh, he's quite quirky. And then in turn, the brand is actually quite quirky itself. And so it translates quite well. But those are the two impressions that I had. I think what I love about that is it shows that people are constantly looking for signals. And so Mm -hmm. this element of bottom up noticing things that an organization does, Dan doesn't have it written down in his brand strategy, I doubt. Ask employee, prospective employees, (laughs) what animal this city reminds them of. It's not part of it, but it's so lived, right? In the culture, in the way we interact with clients, with partners, with potential employees, there's a certain personality that comes across, that comes from people and the way that they act, but is attributed to the organization. And so this idea of the brand being quirky and Dan being quirky, it makes total sense because they're stand-ins for each other, right? The brand is embodied through your people and your actions and the way that makes people feel. An organization can't make anyone feel a certain way. People make people feel a certain way. And so the recognition that everyone who's an internal stakeholder, anybody who has a microphone on Twitter, they're all ambassadors of your brand. I think is more evidence that we just have to pay attention to the way we want to be seen and try to behave consistently with that. Mm. I mean, I'm kind of going to hand over the mic to you. I guess I'm really curious what the process was like of trying to separate brand out from everything. I know you said that you couldn't do it, but when you started, what aspects of it did you talk about? and then realize that it had to actually be in more conversations than just your brand strategy meetings. So I love that you asked that because off the bat, I'm just going to say that it was very intentional to embed branding into everything that we did. But when I had first come in, one of my first kind of tasks was to actually take an audit of everything in every touch point that more space was on. So, you know, starting from social media to website to anything that had the more space branding on it, I was basically just doing a giant sweep and just being like, everything needs to be consistent before we can start. And so, yes. (laughs) So that was my very first like 
introduction into this world of branding. And funny enough, I jump in. Yeah, of course. So when you are looking for consistency, what were you trying to evaluate it on? Was it the visual identity? Was it a feeling? What did consistency mean to you? Because I know what you maybe we're going to say next was like your background is as a designer. So was it Mm -hmm. the visual aspects that you were looking for consistency in? So my background is both in designing and marketing. And so I know that I know that they kind of like we said earlier, they kind of sit in the same world, but they're quite different. They're so different. (laughs) So there are skills that I've had to learn and pick up along the way. But the first thing that I looked for was visual consistency, but it had to be taken back to a more functional level, actually. So like I had this, you know, spreadsheet of like the names of the websites and the accounts that he had opened. And the first thing I noticed was just that more space for light, the name itself was written out in different ways. So it was, you know, more the whole name, more space for light. Sometimes it was more space. Sometimes it was MS4L. So like for the number, sometimes it was, you know, more space for light.com. And so it was at a very functional level. It was more like, let's just, you know, make sure that we're more space for light on everything. And then, um, Obviously, you know, let's make sure that our address is right so people can find us. Let's make sure that our phone number is right so people can contact you. And it was a very, very base level functional, like, let's just make sure people can find us easily, no matter what they search. And I think, and I don't know how common that that is, but I do notice that when you sometimes look for an organization, they do have different uh, names across their platforms, and it can get very confusing for the person who's finding them. And I know that people don't think about that, but it's the first impression. That's the first time that they're going to come across your brand. So that at a functional level, that was my first task. And then, and I'll show you, I'll show you this image. I love this. So this actually, and this will probably touch on what you had mentioned called the semantic network, which at the time I didn't know what that was, but it ties in really well with what I do know, which is called category entry points or CEPs. So the next step to that, after all the functional stuff was done, was to first identify, you know, as a consultancy, what do people, or as an innovation consultancy, what are the first words or what are the first things that we want people to think of to even get into the category of consultants? So it can be as basic as collaboration, adaptability, agile, innovation. So these words that kind of trigger people to be like, all right, we need to look for an innovation consultancy to come in and help us. And so kind of creating this web of of keywords and making sure that those things were incorporated into the website, into our socials, into everything that we had touched. And so that people knew that this is what we were. And then from there, it was also building our philosophy. So what is something as a team that we want to also be focused on? So we want to be honest. We want to be trustworthy. We want people to know that we're always committed. So as a team, when more space comes in, we want people to know that they're getting the best from us. We also want them to know that we're looking in the future where we're going to come in and help organizations transform. And so that those two were kind of like my base, you know, this is how we want more space to be perceived as a company. And you had mentioned that we we can't control how people see us, obviously, but 
we can basically put these things out in the world so that it can help nudge people to think that about us. Yeah, it's not even nudge, right? It's manage. We call it brand management yeah. for a reason. Exactly. Is you can't control it, but you can manage it. So this is such yeah. a beautiful example of trying to mind map how you want to be seen. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, from there, it just kind of builds, right? And that's, so I don't know if you can see um, that phrase there, the guiding light to inspire and space for teams to explore. So that's something that we actually came up with quite early on. And that was essentially, you know, incorporating words from more space for light. And though the story of it, the background of the story of it is a little bit different, but that was basically the feeling that we wanted to embed in people. So we wanted people to feel like when we come in, we're, we're bringing this light that, that, gives people the space to explore. We wanted people to feel inspired and, you know, innovative. And we wanted people to feel excited about the fact that they were going to bring change into their organization. And so these, and obviously, like, at this point, these are just words on on a whiteboard. And that's pr- probably like, the easiest part, I would say, is you can come up with all of these things that you want to portray and that you want people to see you as. But really, So to answer your question about when did we realize that, you know, what was on this board had to be embedded into the rest of the company was that after having many, many meetings of and workshops amongst ourselves to just talk about how do we want people to see us? How how is this email that we're putting out? How is that going to add to our brand? How are we intentional about what we're putting out there? What is what is this article that we're writing about? What is that going to put out there? And so it was really asking that question of like, how's that tying back to this, you know, guiding light to, to inspire or the space for teams to explore? How's that bringing it back to what we believe in as a team? And that's like the one question that just kept coming up. And so they, I think it was really at that point that we realized, like, no matter what we do, we can't escape this. Like, this is what we want. And if, we're, if that's not touching on everything that we're doing, what what really is the point, you know? It's not even what is the point. That makes it sound like it'd be neutral if you did stuff that was inconsistent. It actually hurts it, right? Because it waters down that crystal clear vision. And so Mm -hmm. what I love is that you spent the brand time coming up with how you want to be seen, but to be able to do that, to accomplish it, to have the strategy around it, that's when you realize that it goes into all of the functions of the organization. It's literally in every choice you make. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, Figure out how you want to be seen and then backwards design for it, right? To find the endpoint and make sure all the things you're doing are consistent with that. Yeah. And I guess from here, so the question would be, and you know, you said that you had a good first impression, which is awesome. Obviously, that's what we want. But do any of these words kind of like resonate with you? So you have F-O-N on this board, which I assume is future of now. Is that the podcast? Yes, that's future of now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. So what I love about it is that I have listened to some of your episodes and they really do feel like I'm taking space to explore a new idea that is often inspirational, right? And guiding light is, again, using that same terminology. I think we were talking about visual consistency, but you also want to use linguistic consistency, right? So more space for light and being the guiding light is semantically consistent. You mentioned the word semantic network. It's just a fancy word to say the mind map that people have for concepts. So if I say more space for light, 
what are the other concepts that people have connected to it that are activated when I have that? And so what you're drawing here is, yes, consultancy will be activated. Inspiration will be activated. Future of now will be activated. And that's going to bring up its own different kinds of networks. So you know, almost think of it, if I hit this node, what are the other things that it fires towards? And what do those then connect to? And so that's such a nice example to have in front of me and I wish maybe you can post this somewhere with this visual if you guys don't mind sharing because it is such a beautiful description of how you want to be seen and for me my experience of the brand has less to do with any of your consultancy stuff even though I get that from the website but the more emotional things are really what feels consistent to me and that's based solely on your websites and podcasts and like interacting with your employees, which is exactly what you want, right? You want to think about the perceiver's experience, which is why I love that the first thing that you were asked to do as a new employee was do that audit because you had that fresh pair of eyes. And it Mm -hmm. feels like it has gotten you guys to a really, really clear place where things maybe weren't consistent, but now they're converting on it because I see so many of these words it's just like oh yeah that totally makes sense even the colors feel on brand (laughs) (laughs) I love that we're all about the colors like if you see any of our workshop photos we're just like post-it central and it's it's amazing I think it's even in I just signed up for one of your webinars that we should hype to all of your listeners if this will come out before that happens yeah yeah the colors in there are again giving me that feeling of being inspired but exploring and it's not just the status quo it's a little bit quirky so I think it feels really really consistent it feels reliable and trustworthy like I know what I will get if I show up to listen to something or to talk to one of you yeah oh I love that thank you for that feedback I mean it's it's so (laughs) (laughs) the great thing about it is like I don't need to be special to give you any of that And I think that's where companies sometimes fall down is they just don't ask their customers what they think. They know how Mm. they want to be seen and they think all the things they're doing are working. And you can just ask people. Study perspective taking. We're real bad at it. There's tons and tons of research that say we are overconfident in our perceptions of how other people think and feel. And the answer is just talk to humans. They will often be very happy to tell you what their opinions are. Yeah, and oftentimes we find that people love talking about themselves they love giving their opinion about what they think because it adds that value and it makes that person feel like they're being seen like going back to that it's like it makes people feel like they're connecting and and I think that that really is the whole point of coming up with a brand that you know you you want people to like the brand obviously no one's going to come out with a brand that you want to dislike but there's there's so much more to branding and creating a brand than just a logo or just the website. Like I, I really love that you heavily touched on the feeling aspect of it because I know that it can be a little bit wishy-washy and I know a, a lot of people can kind of shy away from that because they feel like maybe it's not serious. But I think I think the way that a person feels and how that's portrayed through branding is so important because why would anybody want to buy anything from you or get anything from you if they don't trust you? to begin with. I think that is such a beautiful summary of the conversation, right? People (laughs) don't buy stuff. They buy how you make them feel, right? Whether that's Mm -hmm. a personal relationship or whether it's a client, a partner, customer, it's really trying to get your organization to behave in a way 
that makes perceivers feel positive. And it all goes back to trust. It's like, will I be vulnerable in this relationship because I expect really positive benefits from it? And if you add that as your starting point for every decision your organization made, you could probably have the crappiest product. Although if you said it was great and it was really crappy, that would probably violate some expectations of trust. But people will forgive a lot if you make them feel really good. If I wanted people to walk away with one idea, actually, I can ask people to do this. If you are listening to this, I want you to take this information and try to explain it to someone else. Because what I really, really want to have happen in the world is for businesses to exist in a way that makes people feel good. So one of the reasons why I was very, very biased against teaching business was like a lot of sort of young idealistic Ignorant is a strong word, but young, idealistic, (laughs) not so knowledgeable people. I was like, marketing is just selling people shit they don't need. And I thought it was gross. And I had this really great mentor. Or you could think of it as business exists to create things that make people's lives easier and solves problems and then offers them at a fair price that they think is reasonable enough that they're willing to turn over their hard-owned resources money, time, what have you, in exchange for a solution. And so if you think about it like that, marketing and business and especially brand are actually quite noble. So if you can make someone else understand that branding is really about making people feel good, that will help me feel better about the world. I love that. Before we finish off, what do you have more space for in 2021? That is also a good question. And I have a new nephew who I spend a lot of time with, and I moved into a new role at work where I'm working with organizations on their professional learning strategies. And those probably sound really, really unrelated, but seeing learning at the very beginning of being a human and then much later on in life has really piqued my interest about curiosity. And so I'm trying to make more space for learning in my own life and trying to understand the role of creativity and engagement in the learning process across the lifespan. So I'm trying to have more space for learning this year. That's so great. I think there's elements in that that have really piqued my curiosity as well. And I think that's that ties in with the element of play. And that's something that I've been seeking out a little bit more. And that's something that we encourage as well at More Space is that the element of play can really open up the minds of even the most rigid people and it makes you feel safe to make mistakes. And I think that that's something that can be missing. And a lot of people, when they learn something new, they're scared to, to make a mistake and that's really what stops them. Whereas when like your nephew, for example, I'm sure, you know, he'll have no problem <laughs> just, just doing whatever he wants and just trying everything in the world. And that's such a beautiful thing to witness. And he's learning so much more. This is one thing that I'm learning teaching much older adults. Remarkably worried about saying the wrong thing. And what Mm -hmm. I want to do is the only way your brain learns anything, and I get to be on my cognitive neuroscience horse and say this, is by making a prediction and finding out that that prediction was false. Your brain's job is to predict the future in the least energy using way possible. And so 
the way you learn something new is by having a prediction violated. It produces a prediction error. And you cannot do that if you always already have the answers. And so I think play is such a great way to get people out of that space of being scared about getting a prediction error because it means that they're wrong and trying to get people to recontextualize this. What means you're learning, which is what we all want to do. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. I really wish that wasn't the last question, but... (laughs) This was so fun. (laughs) I'm so glad. I learned a lot. So this was really, really lovely for me as well. Thank you again for having me. The Future of Now podcast is produced by More Space for Life. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, please stay safe, look after each other, and as always, be awesome.